Now with the virtual world, we're actually able to engage with scientists from different parts of the world and then connect with their networks. There has become sort of broad recognition that we have a responsibility in higher education to provide our PhD students with a broader set of skills and competencies. That can be another way of getting information that you might not know. You're listening to Vitamin PhD, a podcast from Boston University delivering career narratives and know-how to supplement your doctoral studies. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Vitamin PhD season on core competencies. Specifically, we're focusing on research skills. My name is Matt, and during this two-part episode, we're focusing on reaching a broader audience with our research. My name is Heather, and I'm Matt's co-host for this season. While we spent a whole episode devoting to academic publishing across the disciplines, in this episode, we're exploring publishing and research dissemination beyond the walls of the so-called ivory tower. More and more, we are increasingly expected to translate our findings to a broader audience, both within and outside the academy. Even though this can feel distracting and burdensome at times, this is an important skill for us to develop as scholars, especially those of us interested in public-facing work or participant action research, and it offers us an opportunity to build our CV while making a broader impact beyond our disciplinary worlds. In the first part of this episode, we talk with Dr. Vincent Smith. I'll let him introduce himself. So, so uh, Vincent Smith, I'm a neonatologist, uh, which is a doctor for premature babies. And um, my, um, I'm the division chief in newborn medicine here at Boston Medical Center, and I'm associate professor over at uh, B from the medical school. And I'm a health services researcher, and in full disclosure, I don't have a PhD. I've got an MD and an MPH, but no PhD, so I never actually went to a PhD program. Yeah, so, so my two areas of kind of expertise are in fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, which gets me into the substance use world, and then uh, NICU discharge preparation and planning, which puts me into neonatology, and that's really more where you see more of my health services stuff, because there's a little bit more like of the epidemiology and the population health kind of stuff that kind of contributes to that part. Awesome. That is such important work. Sticking to the overall theme of our season, can you tell us a little bit about what research means to you? So I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story because I love telling funny stories. So I didn't really know what research was. And like, but the, the myth of research always sounded a little intimidating and kind of scary to me. And so I had to kind of reframe the way I think about that. And so, so from my perspective, all research is, is asking questions about things that you're curious about. And so, and everybody does research all the time. They go to the grocery store, hmm, what is the best cereal? Let's think about that. You know, let's look at these different sources to give us a little information to decide what we're going to buy. And so, so research is really just asking the questions and the methods that you use to answer the questions is where it becomes kind of a little different. And, and I, I admit I was incredibly naive when I went through this because I thought there was just one way. You were in a lab, you either had test tubes, you had dot, we call them dots, blots, spots, or mice. You know, and that was like, that was what research was. And I was like, I was like, wait, no, there are a lot of different ways that you can answer questions and you can look at big data sets and you can look at little data sets or you can look at, you know, animals, you can look at chemicals, you can look at, and so, so there's so many different ways that you could approach coming about with an answer to a question. And all of that is research. And then 
when you're finished with it, you have to write it up and share it with other people. So then they gain the benefit of your knowledge, whether it was successful or not. Because if it was successful, they know, hey, we can try this and move on from it. And if it wasn't, we don't need to waste our time on that because it doesn't work. And so you can save a lot of people a lot of time because people sometimes say, oh, if you do research and you have a negative study, then it doesn't help. I'm like, hmm, sometimes knowing what not to do is as helpful as knowing what to do. That's kind of my kind of take on research. And, and also, people don't think research is fun. People are like, oh, I have to do research. It's like, oh, I have to take my medicine. And I'm like, that is so not true. Like, and, and it's funny when people people forget about this. Like, when you do like a clinical care or something, you help one patient, one person at a time. When you do research, you help millions of people. And a lot of times it's people you never met, who you never saw, and it may be years after you're finished with it because it still lingers on. That's such a good point especially about how we're all doing research all the time. So staying on the same track, but a little bit more difficult, it's time for our season-long challenge question. In three to five words, finish this sentence, please. Research is... Research is asking questions and finding answers. I love that. It's so cool to see the variation in responses throughout this season. And now, Dr. Smith, I know you work with a lot of different populations. Can you tell us a little bit more about the different populations that you work with? I, I don't feel like I have a bunch of different populations that I work with because most of like most of my discharge stuff is focused primarily on parents of, of former premature babies that are in the hospital. And then my work with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, mostly ironically enough, that focuses on providers because uh, a lot of it is raising awareness among providers and teaching them skill sets to be able to recognize that this is an issue, evaluate and manage it. And so, so, so it's kind of that's kind of more of a of who I kind of work with. Um, the findings of the things that I work with, mostly with discharge readiness, uh, has a separate kind of policy implications than with the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder stuff. And so the the reason I say that is because Substance use is, is really a pretty hot topic right now, and, and it's hot in a kind of couple of different ways. Because one, um, knowing that there are different populations that are affected by substance use, I mean, it, it really does cross every demographic, but traditionally people think of substance use as like an inner city kind of urban issue. And now it's with this opioid crisis, it's become really apparent that that's not true, that like suburban, rural some some rural places that may have some of the highest substance use issues you know that are out there and so so i think that that has a big kind of policy implication as to what you're going to do to kind of help with this situation and, and i think part of it is because especially when we're talking about substance use issues like it can be pretty punitive like i mean you look at like i think what was it not virginia it was like north carolina or something like that where they were prosecuting people who had negative pregnancy outcomes because in relation to substance use disorder. And honestly, that's not helping anybody. I mean, like if you if, if a person had diabetes, would you prosecute them for having a complication associated with diabetes? And the answer is no. I mean, and the same thing with substance use disorders. It's a it, you know, it's a it's a it's a medical condition that requires treatment. And it, and it's not that like people are intentionally trying to cause harm. Like people have a disease and they're they're medicating it. And so so I think that there has to be kind of 
some some understanding of of what's going on as far as the disease process and understanding what's going to actually make this situation better and locking somebody up in a cage for x amount of time isn't going to help with that huh that's interesting those arguably seem like two different topics on the one hand focusing on issues in newborns and on the other hand addressing the needs of adults with substance use disorder uh, can you explain a bit about how they relate for your research and maybe how the overlap informs your relationship to policymakers and other important stakeholders? I will say, um, like locally, like, you know, it tends to be kind of local and departments of public health, which regulate like, you know, newborn ICUs and their levels and what requirements are for them. They have been interested in like, okay, we have recognized that outcomes are a problem because there, there's a, there's differential outcomes. And like one of the things that contributes to differential outcomes is that, you know, you have differential preparation. And so, so they've taken an interest in trying to kind of standardize preparation at a really kind of a higher level without real, a lot of specifications. And that, but the National Perinatal Association who I work with has taken this on as like, they want to make it a national kind of policy issue. And so, and they have, you know, a national reputation and the cloud to be able to bring this to policymakers in a way that they could actually implement it. And a question I know that you haven't asked me, which I'll kind of answer anyway, is like, as a researcher, you know, are, are you responsible for making sure that the research that you do is available widely and that, you know, that other people can, um, policymakers, press, any of those people are available to, to, to have access to the work that you've done. And I think that's a yes and a no. And, and so it's really hard to do every single aspect of, of from, from doing the re designing the research, doing the research, publishing the research, publicizing the research and coming up with policy, because it's a different skill set that's involved in most of that. And so, and so you could potentially do all of that for one particular thing once. <laughs> You know, but that'd probably be your career going from beginning to end with one particular thing. And for some people, that's great. I think for, for most people, they focus on one end of it and then they partner with other people who have the other skill sets to be able to allow them to go and do these other pieces of it. Policymakers and scientists don't always speak the same language. And so you have to be able to speak both languages in order to be successful in that way. And so policymakers have also have a different um, set of values that kind of drives their decision making. And I think you have to have an inherent understanding of that in order to be able to frame things in a way that they can receive it, understand the importance of it, yet still keep within like, you know, their priorities and their goals. And I, and I do think that's like, that's like an art form. It, it really is. And so, so I think it's important that people, that there are people who can do that. And I don't know that that necessarily needs to be the scientist. I think what scientists do, what, what's helpful for scientists is, if, or re, when I say scientists, I mean people who do research, because not every person who does research is a scientist, because I'm not a scientist. <laughs> but I will say, you know, um, it's helpful if you can talk about what you do with your family in terms that they actually understand. And so, so at least for me, that's like a common sense test. And, and so because like I had to learn, like when I was learning medical lingo, I would be rolling off stuff, my family, and they would just stare blankly at me. And, uh, and they're like, okay, well, that wasn't helpful. I'm going to go to Google. <laughs> and, and so to, to avoid that, 
you know, you learn to translate things, concepts that you know in your head from this this whole research kind of scientific world into con real world concepts so that it is more available to people who are around you. And I'd say one caution with that, though, is because the press does that all the time, but the press doesn't do it carefully. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's all about translating concepts and tailoring the message for the audience. And that can be hard because there's so much that can potentially be lost in translation, not to mention people's varying priorities and resource differences affecting their viewpoint in ways that you may not even understand. Uh, Heather, I know you've had some experience with this type of work before. Could you share some of your experiences working with policymakers and community members and so on? Mm -hmm. Of course. So my experience with this actually started pretty young and was really practiced during my time as the director of teen services at the Rape Crisis Center in Worcester, Massachusetts. And there I had to work in educational, organizational, legal, medical, institutional, and various counseling settings, both group and one-to-one, -one, which all involved a lot of translation and preparation. Everything to, from what I'm teaching classes about, to overall presentation style, to dress and behavior, which is especially important working with adolescents, but of course, also people in general. You have to pull from several worlds at once without losing authenticity. And today, my description of my work shifts depending on who I'm talking to while maintaining the same sort of core research questions. Whether it's with colleagues, my advisor and committee members, prospective employers, conferences, undergraduates, community members, care workers, people with addiction, corrections officers, and so on, I have these different elevator pitches for each that try to explain my work while carefully emphasizing its relevance for the person or the group that I'm connecting with. If it's not obvious why they should care, then it's my job to help bridge that gap. Simultaneously, I'm sure to listen to their questions and what I should address and make more clear, as well as watching their less conscious reactions, like are they engaged or zoning out? I think a big part of developing the skill is even being aware that we do this naturally, even though natural isn't a word we use in sociology a lot. But once this awareness is developed and intentionally practiced, it can be refined. It takes work, but it's a skill that we all have and therefore can improve over the course of our careers. And, of course, it makes our research smarter, richer, and more interesting. While it's not peer review in the traditional sense, it's still an opportunity for feedback, as well as an opportunity to share our experiences, research, and worldviews with others. Now, let's hear a little bit more about elevator pitches, which I just brought up from our graduate student panel that you have to have different elevator pitches for different contexts, right? So like when you are, you know, when you're approaching like a potential uh, committee member at a conference perhaps, and you want to like get into the like, you know, pique their curiosity, but also like know that they're half listening to you because they're trying to get somewhere else. So that's, you know, that's one context or like the, the email where they might read it actually, you know, and like getting into that. But I think also, you know, in terms of like reaching a broader audience, um like that that for me i think is the, the trickiest one um because i mean like as i was saying like i at least i have at least one full chapter devoted to to phalloplasty so like how do i tell people well I, it's about penises mostly um <laughs> like so how do i approach that right um and uh especially with my parents right like i'm not gonna <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated in ways it doesn't need to be. Um, so I think like, you know, 
how do I ground those kinds of chapters? So I think like, it, it, and really, because it's, it's not about penises, it's rather about like, like the development of medicine, um, how surgical procedures were, were kind of invented, why they were invented at different particular moments in these particular places. Um, and, you know, and that I think makes a lot more sense to people than like, you know, why would I be like following this particular procedure? But I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm more so like following these particular moments in time. So I guess my elevator pitch is always, I work on diag- low cost diagnostics um, and looking at diagnostics for diseases that diseases that are involved in women's health, but also infectious and infectious diseases as well. And um, I would say for dissemination, obviously like the main currency of academia's um, scientific papers or manuscripts, but also um, with public health, I, I would be able to work with like the Rhode Island Department of Health and perhaps be able to present a study that I'm working on to them. So that's another way to at least disseminate the research, not in just an academic sense, going to conference and posters and all that stuff, but actually give the data to people who are would actually, you know, like regular people, I'll say. You know, to be honest, I think that the, the answer is, as of right now, I, I really don't. Um, so it has been you know, COVID and we've been inside for the better part of a year and a half. Um, and so my exposure to, you know, the outside world is um, my two friends who are, <laughs> um, who know what I do. Um, and my parents who say they know what I do, <laughs> um, you know, who, right, wink, wink. Um, and I, I would say that trying to explain your research to your parents is a fantastic way to really boil at, you know, or boil down to what it is that you study. And so it was from those explanations that I would say my hypothetical elevator pitch, should I ever leave my home and be able to trap someone in an elevator long enough to talk to me, um, would be that broadly, I'm really intrigued by social inequalities through occupations. I have been pinned with the question of what do you study um, since I got here, since before I got here. And I have always taken to the abstract of the last thing that I wrote. And that is what I study. And it has created um, what was really a quite fractured identity. I have micro level questions about mental health. I have macro level questions about organizational behavior. Um, And so I really had to sit down and I sat down with a mentor and said, like, what am I doing? You know, what is the commonality here? Um, And it, you know, it kind of clicked. It's all about occupational inequality. It's all about status. Uh, And so from there, I was like, I can build on this and come up with my, you know, identity as a scholar, that thing that you need, but it's largely just a, it's a made up narrative construct. Like nobody comes in with an identity and it is, it is heavily, you know, manufactured. So I would say practice your elevator pitch, but if it changes, it changes. I mean, my joke was like the only common thing about these things that I study is me, that I'm interested in studying these things. Um, And that is partially true, but I'm interested in specific things for specific reasons. There's a theory that speaks to me. There's an unanswered question. Like, don't just make it internal. Don't just tell yourself your elevator pitch a thousand times. You will end up, as I did, um, you know, perfecting an abstract, but it doesn't really help you. 
uh, especially not when you're done with that and moving on to a totally different project with a brand new abstract and you're starting from ground zero. Oh, excellent. Another amazing series of reflections from our graduate student panelists. In order, the students that you heard were Dana Ahern, a feminist studies scholar at UCSB, Kiara Lee, biomedical engineering student at Brown University, and Kristen Zock, a sociology PhD student here at BU. Now let's get back to our expert. Dr. Smith, in your experience crafting a variety of elevator pitches, can you tell us how you prepare for and maybe tailor your materials for different audiences? So I think it kind of varies. I, I mean, I personally am a person who believes in preparation. <laughs> and so I think like it's helpful to kind of for you to have an understanding of who your audience is, what where they're coming from, and then kind of anticipate a little bit about what kinds of questions they would have and why they would have those kinds of questions. And so and so it, it, it's, it's going to be impossible to completely 100% predict, but it does put you in a more comfortable position to be able to say, okay, if I'm talking to economists about my research, they're going to be more concerned about the dollars and cents. If I'm talking to parents about my research, they're going to be more concerned about how this is going to impact them and what it's going to mean for their kid or their family. And if I'm talking to lawmakers, they're going to have to, they're going to try to understand a little bit of both of those things. Plus, what's it going to take for the legislative process for it to be able to to move forward and, you know, our current political climate. And so so I think understanding that makes the message more relevant to the people who are receiving it. So my training, you know, we learn to write scientific papers and we learn the scientific method and those things are kind of indoctrinated into us. And then like we learned how to present at a scientific meeting if you're doing a poster or a platform. And so, but again, that's still talking to your, your main audience who are also in your field and who also speak your language. I think it wasn't until like further out, like once I started publishing things and then I started getting asked for like media contacts and those types of things that I gained a greater understanding. And then like going to things like when you go to Capitol Hill, advocate with lawmakers, which is also something that, that, you know, that I've done in the past, is you, we have to have formal training to be able to do what they call like an elevator pitch, meaning that like you have to have like your 30 second version, because sometimes all you get is the ele elevator ride up with this person and you got to be able to get what, you know, tell them what you feel like they need to know in order to make a decision in 30 seconds or less. Then also, you know, I got formal training and, okay, you go from 30 seconds to one minute, from one minute to five minutes, from five minutes to 10 minutes to 10 minutes to actual presentation. And so, so each one of those things is really a special skill. And I think it does take special training. The good thing is like the programs that you're going through now are much more aware of this than during the time when I was doing this. Let's see how this gray hair up here. <laughs> like, so, so, so we knew, I mean, people knew it wasn't important, but it wasn't important enough to be included in our training programs, but ultimately your success or failure comes down to you. And so you have to kind of own that. And, uh, and if you're not getting what you need from person X, Y, or Z, then you have to be proactive in seeking it out because you want to be successful and you will be, but sometimes you, you know, you have to put a little bit of like self, you know, motivated effort into that. Oh yeah, that's great. And it makes a ton of sense. It's a lot to learn and keep track of, and the onus is really on us to do what we can to make our work make sense and be relevant to other people. So shifting gears just a bit, Dr. Smith, 
we were hoping you could talk to us about research ethics and in particular how they relate to community-centered knowledge and communication. We would really, uh, really be interested to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, there's a couple of things like, like we just have to own the history of, of, of science and research and it has not always been good. It has not always been equitable. It has not always been diverse. It has not always been ethical. I mean, just owning that. And, you know, we can go through a whole litany of examples, but I don't feel like we need to do that for this particular conversation. I think anyone who's doing research should go through the standard training, which is the, you know, the CTI, CITI training, which talks about like, you know, ethics and research and understanding the background and the history and the reason for this, understanding what vulnerable populations are and, and why they're vulnerable and how, how people have exploited them in the past to prevent them from doing it in the future. And then people have to have a moral compass. I mean, there are some people, and, and we've all can name examples of that, who deliberately fabricate research for professional advancement, for financial gain, for whatever reasons. And what they've done is tarnish the world of science and tarnish the knowledge. And so, you know, so that's not ideal. When you talk about like, how do you reach these marginalized populations? And I think there's a couple of things. One, um, don't go to do work on those groups. If you're, if you're interested in working with the group, then you actually work with the group. You talk to the group, you find out what their concerns are, what their issues are, and you work with them in a way. So, so, so they're part of from inception to execution, to publication, to, to, to dissemination. They're part of the whole thing. In, in which case then you're working with a group and you're not doing things to a particular group. And also if you're working on a topic that, that that's important to the health and well-being overall um, wellness of that particular group, then it's a definite benefit to them. And if it's not going to be a direct benefit to them and it's a benefit to someone else, then you explain in the beginning that you'd be really clear that the reason why we're asking you is because we have this other and you know we can't for whatever reason do this but if we work with you you'll be able to be helping them and and and, and if people choose to participate in that way then they're participating with their eyes open and their understanding of it may not be a direct benefit for me but it's going to be a huge benefit for this other group and, and so I think that's really important and I think afterwards, it's hard because once you've sent it out into the world, it's yours, but not really. And how, what people do with that. And if you see someone, you know, who's doing something unethical with the things that you get, you can call them out about it and be like, that's not whether it's going to be effective or not. I mean, at least you'll sleep better at night. Oh, yeah, that's such a good point. Um, it's definitely a fear that I have, especially working with people with addiction or people who are incarcerated, that the knowledge that I generate will somehow hurt them when it's out of my hands and in the world generally. I mean, who knows where it will go? So it's definitely a balance. Well, I think that's all for today. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith, and to our listeners for joining us for part one of Research Skills and Reaching a Broader Audience. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. And so, hey, you guys keep doing great work because I know you're both going to do amazing things in the future. So, Yes, and thank you, Dr. Smith. And thank you to our graduate student panelists. 
Don't forget to tune in for the second part of this two-part episode when we speak with investigative journalist and fascinating scholar of so many subjects, Kalpana Jain, who is the current ethics and religion editor at The Conversation. Be sure to check out our website and show notes for more information about our guests, as well as past and upcoming episodes of Vitamin PhD. Talk to you soon.